joining us for the last episode of 2020 of the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. But don't worry, we will be back in 2021 with more episodes and exciting guests. In today's episode, we're speaking with Andrew Batera, who is the Executive Director of Marketing and Sales at New England Biolabs. Andy joined New England Biolabs in 2009, having previously worked at a variety of R&D marketing and senior management positions at Amersham, GE and Promega. As Executive Director of Marketing and Sales at NEB, Andy is responsible for the development and implementation of NEB's marketing strategies and tactics across its entire product portfolio. Andy also oversees its US sales and customer service activities and organizations. His role at NEB is the direct management of the customer service, marketing and sales professionals covering the disciplines of market research, product management, channel and order management, US sales, digital marketing and scientific and marketing communications. Andy is also the NEB representative at the Analytical Life Science and Diagnostics Association Executive Management Meetings and a board member of the Sales and Marketing Professionals in Science. In this episode, we're talking with Andy about his career path from the bench to the commercial side of science, challenges for NEB during the COVID-19 pandemic, protocols for vendors, and more. So let's jump right in. Andy, I would like to welcome you to the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. Thank you, Anita. It's great to be here and I'm looking forward to our discussions today. Andy, to get started, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and what you're currently working on? Sure. As everybody knows, my name is Andy Batera. My title is Executive Director of Marketing and Sales at uh, New England Biolabs. I've been with New England Biolabs for about uh, 12 years now. And in that role, I look after uh, marketing at the company globally, working with our subsidiaries around the world. But I also have responsibility for sales and customer service in the U.S., and what I really enjoy about having that uh, mixture of marketing, sales and customer service is it gets me closer to the customer first, but also uh, a better understanding of the customer's needs, which I can then hopefully bring inside the company to help us serve those customers more, more appropriately. Great. And so you have chosen a career path really from the bench to the commercial side of science. Can you please tell us a little bit about that decision and what really motivated you to follow this path instead of staying in an academic environment? Yeah, that's a great uh, question. Takes me back a while as well. So I graduated from uh, King's College in London in a degree in microbiology. And I was in a good position, I guess, in some ways that I had two PhD opportunities on the table. Graduate school didn't exist in the UK, as well as two industrial R&D positions. My thinking was the direction I always wanted to go in was more in the sort of industrial versus academic uh, research world. So really the question was, did I need a PhD to get on in those uh, two industrial companies that I was offered uh, a position at. And the one company, the company I joined, Amisham in the UK, they convinced me that I didn't need a PhD. So I thought, okay, I'll start and see what happens. And if uh, things don't work out, I can always go back to academia and perhaps do my PhD as a, a second uh, step. But I moved into the molecular biology R&D group of Amisham. I was developing products for researchers around the world in the realm of DNA and RNA. And uh, what I found was I really enjoyed the commercialization. I got a real kick out of customers actually buying those products that I was involved in the development of. And that really gave me a flavor for it was the commercial world that I actually enjoyed most. So after being in research and development for a number of years, I moved into a marketing role. And I was based in a facility in Cardiff in South Wales. And I was the only marketing person there. It was still based in the lab, so I wore 
for a lab coat, even though it was in an office. And the great thing I had was I was very close to the science. So if a customer rang me up or somebody in uh, one of our offices around the world and it was a technical question I couldn't answer myself, then basically my daughter literally shout across the lab and say, what's the answer to this? And that gave me this great balance of the two science and commercial worlds. And uh, my career really sort of on the marketing side took off from there. I was in that role for another seven years and then had the opportunity to move across to uh, the US where I headed up the marketing in the US for our cell biology area. And then eventually Amazon was acquired by GE and uh, I had the opportunity to manage many different marketing groups around the world in the uh, genomics and proteomics areas. And so I've never really looked back from that perspective of uh, moving from the bench to the commercial world. And then since then, I had the opportunity to work for Promega for a number of years in their marketing team. And now obviously at uh, New England Biolabs, as you're aware. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. And so my next question is two questions. And as we all know, this year has been quite challenging for pretty much, I would say, everyone. But what has NEB done to support scientists during the pandemic? And also, I was wondering, what are some challenges that NEB faced or maybe specifically marketing during this time, especially with all the conferences shut down and everything turning into a virtual world? What have been the biggest challenges of 2020 for you and your teams? Yeah, great question. First of all, our number one priority was for the well-being and health of all our staff, not just in the US, but around the world. That was obviously important because we want everyone to be uh, safe and healthy, but it also was important for us to be able to support our customers. As you might imagine, many of our customers, particularly in the early days, were developing diagnostic tests against uh, the virus. They were also doing research into the virus to try and understand how it caused uh, COVID-19. And then also a number of our customers were actually developing vaccines that uh, are in the clinic at the moment. So for us, the importance of actually making sure our uh, staff were healthy and safe was important because we needed to support those customers. So we really had to look uh, deep into how we operated our business. Anybody who could work from home has been working from home, myself included, for the last almost uh, nine months now. And those people that needed to be in the labs, whether doing R&D work, or whether doing production work, or whether actually packaging products to be shipped to our customers around the world, we had to really think about how to make that environment as safe as possible. So working in shifts, isolating certain groups from other groups in case somebody got infected so that we could still carry our business operation, how to social distance in the lab and things like that. We're all parameters that uh, we've had to put in place and continue to obviously monitor and develop as we're going forward. To your second question about uh, the challenges, I think they'd probably fall into two areas. Firstly, we had many new customers come to us, as uh, has been well documented. Unfortunately, there weren't enough reagents and consumables, particularly around the testing for the virus, to satisfy every sort of testing group around the world. It's almost uh, it's a serious comment, this, but it's almost amusing as well that we didn't just have companies coming to us asking us about, do you have enough reagent to meet our testing demand? We had countries coming to us who uh, were in the same issue where they were trying to have enough testing facilities and capabilities in that country to obviously serve and protect their population. So to that uh, need, obviously meeting demand was a major issue, scaling up our uh, how much enzyme we could actually produce at one time, how we could actually make sure our quality wasn't compromised, and how we could actually ship that product around the world. Because as you imagine as well, there were less flights uh, going around the world. So even making sure our products could get to customers was a challenge. But I'm glad to say that the team rallied and uh, did a fabulous job actually trying to meet as many of our customers' needs as possible. 
On the marketing side, some of the challenges were actually just trying to understand which of our customers were actually working or not. Certainly in the periods where they were locked down either in countries or in the case of the US, certain states. Many of the researchers weren't in the laboratories. Some were, if they were working on COVID, they were obviously essential workers and continued to do their work, but others were working from home. And even that challenge of how do we know which of the researchers are actually in the laboratory, which ones are working from home, and how their needs actually vary as a consequence. So perhaps the challenge there was what types of communication to send to people. I've heard some researchers complaining that some suppliers were sending them coupons for buy two, get one free. And of course, if they're not in the lab, it's uh, you're just wasting uh, their time by sending them those sorts of promotions. We didn't take that tag, but it was, again, the same challenge was what do you actually communicate to a customer when you don't know what situation they're in? Right. And that also leads into my next question. One thing that the world really had to learn, I think, this year is how to effectively communicate virtually, because I think a lot of people were not used to this virtual environment. And now everybody is being forced to navigate through it. But based on your experience communicating with customers, do you have any suggestions or tips on how communication can be improved and optimized in a virtual environment for researchers? Yeah, great question. Before I come on to the virtual aspect, I'll come back to my point that I mentioned of trying to understand your customer, in our case, the researchers. I think the most important thing throughout this period is the word empathy. Empathy is sometimes not the easiest word to actually understand, but my definition of it is really understanding your customers, in this case, the researchers, the scientists' needs, and really tailoring communications such that it is respectful and appreciative, if you like, the challenges they're facing. I used the example a minute ago about promotions not being appropriate. At this time, I think when you're in contact with the customers, with the scientists, it's critical to actually listen to the situation they find themselves in. Many researchers, many scientists have never experienced this sort of time before. You can only be in the lab from one till five or from nine till noon or whatever it is and trying to actually carry out experiments in different ways in shorter times so that you allow your other colleagues in the lab to come in and do their experiments. So understanding those needs and communicating with empathy is key. And I, and I would say that there's been some interesting sort of articles on the web about this, but It's not about communicating with messages like we're all in it together, because to be honest with you, as a consumer, you don't care what your supplier's situation is. You just need them to actually support you when you need them. It's about really listening to that customer, as I said, and, and acting accordingly. In terms of maybe some examples of that, that I'll, I'll help to then come on to your second question about how to communicate. One of the things we specifically focused on was education. The assumption being with researchers, scientists having more time at home, and maybe they're going to spend more time actually doing research into how do I learn a new technique? How do I think about experiments I'm going to be doing next around whatever discipline they're actually in? So education was a large component of what pivoted towards our communications in. An aspect of that was also trying to share what we'd learned in our environment when we went back to our laboratories, the research and development staff and the production staff, and providing guidelines and wall charts and things like this that you could stick up in the lab as, you know, remember silly things, be like, remember to wash your hands, remember to social distance, those sorts of things, obviously, is now in our sort of vernacular, and we're used to saying to each other. But providing those sorts of tools was another way to actually communicate. 
To your second question about how to communicate, we still had to communicate through the regular sort of channels, email and things of that nature, putting out webinars. But as I mentioned, the sort of content changed to be more educational. But there are other things that we've been experimenting with. Obviously, video conferencing is much more commonplace these days, whether it's uh, Zoom or Teams or what have you. And getting the customers, in our case, the scientists used to communicating with their sales reps or their technical support staff through these vehicles, obviously, was very different. And the other things we've been looking at are things like virtual tabletops or virtual trade shows. And I'll be honest with you on that front, that's something that we're still experimenting with. And I don't think we've actually found the right solution. You mentioned in your question that obviously scientific conferences are not going ahead or not going ahead in the same format they once were in terms of in-person meetings. That said, there are obviously virtual conferences going on. And I think in some ways they're actually great because you can listen to somebody give a great scientific presentation from your home and you can write notes and in a much more perhaps comfortable environment. But the thing that is different is during the coffee break, during the lunch, you would typically go to the exhibition hall. Might be there posters there that you visit in. There might be exhibition booths that you walk around while having your lunch or having your coffee. Now, of course, you go to your kitchen and have that in your home. You don't go to this virtual trade show because there's not the perhaps the drive to. So I think that aspect is still a work in progress. Right, that's a good point about the virtual expo and virtual booth setup. We actually participated in a virtual event too, I think two weeks ago. And that was very interesting too, because yeah, as you said, like people, I don't know, I think that's something that is still to be figured out for virtual events, how to really do the virtual booth thing in a way that is actually effective and people do participate in it. It is, yeah, it's hard because as I said, when you're in a real conference, let's say you're wandering around, as I say, over lunch or in the coffee break, people come out, ask you questions and it'll take you in a direction perhaps you weren't thinking of. And it's sometimes a very profitable discussion. When you're challenged with other things and you don't have to walk around, then you, you just do other things. And, and there are ways, obviously, you can incentivize people to come to your booth with, I don't know, it could be giveaways or prizes or something like that. But then obviously, it's always a question is, are people coming there just to win the prize or do they truly want to talk about something that we may be able to help them with? Cool. So my next question, this is a question that I always ask on this show because the podcast is called Minor Tweak Major Impact. But I know you're not at the bench right now, but I was wondering, did you have any opinion about minor tweaks in research? Like oftentimes researchers experience that they're working with a method and it works great for a year or two even. And then all of a sudden it stops working and they have no idea why. And they spend like a whole year or longer to troubleshoot why it's not working or maybe and method works in like the hand of one person and it doesn't work in the other hands person. Do you have any opinion or any thoughts on minor tweak major impact moments? Yeah, I mean, as you point out, it's been a long time since I've been at the bench and I'm not sure they'd let me back in the lab these days anyway, to be honest with you, uh, it'd be dangerous, I think, there. But as a company, New England Biolabs is very supportive of open access. We truly believe that sharing information is the way scientists can learn from each other and how we can actually advance science globally. I think the pandemic is a great example of that, actually. The publishing of preprints through bioarchives or medarchives or whatever communication vehicle it might be has really shown how by sharing that information more quickly and uh, more broadly allows science to actually advance more quickly. 
quickly. And you're seeing, I think, as a consequence of this, greater collaborations around the world. So we're very supportive of this. In fact, we obviously publish our own methods around our products, but historically, we've also published the composition of buffers and various other products that we sell because we believe that actually shows sometimes that we've actually done our due diligence in developing that product. And although it means the customer could potentially make their own buffer up, we're really trying to show that we've done the science behind the product to make sure it actually works. To your specific question, not being at the bench, I don't read publications and papers as frequently as I used to. But one area that's important to us as from the marketing perspective is to actually highlight when our products are being used by scientists in key applications or perhaps new workflows that we haven't done the work on ourselves. And we like to actually publicize those on our website to show other researchers, other scientists, how their products can actually be used in these different and innovative ways. So we have tools that list the various citations of our products on the website. And it is interesting when you go through these, and this doesn't happen that often, but it does happen that we'll read a paper where it references an NEB product. And when we actually look at it, the actual product they used is not NEB's products or uh, vice versa. They have a brand name that is somebody else's brand name, but they actually associate it with New England Biolabs. And when we see those sorts of errors, which I can appreciate are easy enough to make, it does make you question how good is the rest of the publication? You know, if this is an error, there's uh, there are errors in the, I don't know, the temperature or the number of microliters that we used in a particular scientific step. And it certainly also highlights why we're great supporters of Protocols.io as a platform to actually share in these protocols in different uh, ways that scientists can see just the protocol and perhaps build on it and share improvements to it. Great. And you mentioned that sometimes researchers, they don't follow things very closely, but I was wondering, have there ever been any instances where actually researchers tweak things on their own and then that actually leads into improving the products or maybe the protocols of NEB with, with whatever they have done from their side? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Protocols.io, for example, NEB published many of its uh, protocols there, and you can see where other scientists have actually said, oh, well, I incubated it for 45 minutes, this is 30 minutes, or whatever it might be. And that forms a great dialogue between NEB scientists and the scientists who are using those protocols. And you can see many examples on the site of those sorts of changes. When we're developing our own products, we obviously have internal testers and internal trialists who will actually try and repeat the experiment of the scientists who develop in the product to make sure it's actually it can be followed. Also, for the more complicated products, we also will use customers in a sort of alpha or beta trial type scenario to test the product. And in many ways, it's not just testing the product to make sure it gives the results that we're hoping it does, but actually test the protocol. Because if it's a brand new technique, then they're reading that protocol for the first time and following it. I know there's been examples of products where some of the members of NEB's executive team have actually gone into the lab, including our CEO, testing out uh, certain products. We had some fun ones, I think it was uh, two or three years ago, where uh, we had a new clay acid purification product, Monarch, that a number of the exec team had the opportunity to test out and it became a little bit of a competition in terms of which of the exec team members could get the highest yield and highest purity of DNA in this particular case. And in this case, actually, the CEO uh, actually uh, was the one who actually won that competition, but we're still not sure whether the results were uh, rigged in his favor or not. But that testing is vital and providing feedback to our technical support group is key to make sure that protocols are as good as they can be because they can change over time as, as circumstances change. 
And so you already answered my next question a little bit, but so oftentimes I actually host a workshop that I call the art of writing methods because it's actually not that trivial and it's not as easy as it might sound at first. So if you actually want to write a method or a protocol that is easy for others to understand and easy for others to follow. There's actually a lot of things that need to go in and a lot of things need to consider. And there are a lot of best practices, for example, that I try to communicate to people for when they're working on their methods. But obviously for NEB, writing protocols is a critical task for the company. And I was wondering, and you already said that there's a lot of testing going on, but Are there any other things that NEB does to really ensure the clarity of your official methods and protocols and really to make sure that really anyone around the world could pick up a protocol and follow it? Are there any other tips or suggestions you can give from your experience with NEB methods? Firstly, I would highlight that I think it's, uh, it's great you're providing this sort of training because sometimes the greatest scientists never become the greatest scientists because they have a challenge communicating what it is they do. And I think protocols definitely fall into that uh, category as well. If a protocol is not well written such that somebody can repeat it, then unfortunately the science never gets the credibility that perhaps it deserves. As I highlighted, uh, we have scientists obviously who are developing products and typically the protocol associated with that product is initially written by that scientist. But then that method has to be tested by other scientists at NEB and then customers as well through beta testing and the like. And that allows that protocol to be road tested before we actually commercialize it. But also we do have technical writers and we have writers within the marketing communications team that are also looking over those protocols because many times obviously that protocol will be read by a scientist where English may not be the first language. The importance of the words you use, the way you describe a certain step is actually important. In fact, I'm also certain experiments and protocols now are sometimes better communicated by video than they are by the written word, just because we can show somebody versus just reading it. And as I'm sure as well, people learn differently. So if you're a visual learner versus somebody who listens by hearing something, then, you know, obviously you're going to learn things differently. So I think that extra person who's perhaps outside the lab, in our case, our technical writers reviewing them and actually also tweaking them is a good thing as well. One thing I'd also add to this as a sort of experiment that we're carrying out ourselves is we've been looking at adding various technical support tips and, and even protocols, simple protocols, I should say, via Alexa, the Amazon assistant, but in this case, make it a lab assistant. We've actually had some protocols for very simple uh, single and double digests of restriction enzymes on DNA. And this is another way to actually communicate and try and get the word across as to how to carry out a particular experiment. So I think to answer your question, I think it's It's really road testing it is actually the key and using people who are not too close to the actual protocol to read it so they can pick up on the perhaps uh, obvious mistakes or errors that everybody as a human makes when you read something multiple times. That's very cool. And I really like the Alexa example. I'll have to check that out for sure. And I'm also a very big fan of video protocols. I think those are definitely very great. Yeah, I would agree because there's some things it's very hard to describe, but then when you see it, somebody else perform that experiment in that way, it becomes very straightforward. Yeah, that's very true. It's also nice if you have a video because oftentimes you don't even need to talk over it because the video itself, it just explains what you're doing. And if somebody might not speak English very fluently or any other language, if you show it with images or videos, I think it's a lot more understandable and accessible for people. 
Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. In fact, I think that I've certainly spoken to some of your colleagues, and I think even the development of apps to go through different steps that you can check off and things like that, I think is going to be the future. In fact, keyboards at some stage are going to disappear. So I think having almost protocols that you're interacting through voice and say, I don't know, if you imagine an electronic, a smart electronic notebook that you can say, oh, I incubated this for 35 minutes instead of 30 minutes as per the protocol, or I just noted the temperature was off or whatever. So you're recording those during the experiment rather than trying to recall all these things and write it up in your lab notebook later, I think was, uh, is definitely going to be the way of the future. I agree. And I think there are already some startups working on that kind there of technology. Are. So that's very exciting. My last question always on this show is if you were allowed to make a wish for a tool that would make the life of usually it's researchers easier and more efficient, what would that be? But I think I'm going to ask it a little bit different. But if you were allowed to make a wish for a tool that would make the life of life science marketing leaders easier and more efficient, what would that be? And this is our fun question and any answers are allowed. All right. Well, I'll answer it seriously first and then perhaps in a fun way. So firstly, I hope that we get through this pandemic quickly and all of your listeners and all the scientists who are doing the wonderful work they are around the world to help cure us of this COVID-19 disease continue to be healthy and safe and, and do all the work that they're doing as quickly and as rapidly as they can. But perhaps the more fun answer would be as a marketer, if I could develop a, a tool, it would probably be something like the tricorder on Star Trek. So if you're not a, a Trekkie fan, this is this device that you basically pointed, uh, in this case, usually somebody who's sick and it uh, automatically tells you what's wrong with them. But this would be different in that I could wander into uh, a scientist lab, it would be hopefully a potential customer. And I could use this tricorder and without almost asking them, I could understand what type of research they're doing, what their biggest pain points are, what uh, opportunities there were to improve the science. So we can go directly into a discussion about how NEB could support that customer to improve and accelerate the wonderful research they're doing. So it'd be a, a tricorder that would help me to uh, understand the customer's needs at a level that I couldn't do otherwise. That would be super cool. And is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners today? Maybe to finish, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity, Anita, for having the conversation we've had today. And if I had to leave the listeners with a final message, it was continue to what, whatever he was doing. I think a lot of your listeners are definitely already in the mode of the importance of sharing good protocols, sharing their science. And as I mentioned earlier, I really do believe that sharing science globally, collaborating globally is the way uh, science will cure the world of ills like uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. So keep up the good work you're doing. Great. Andy, thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your stories and insight on the Minor Tweak Major Impact podcast. This is your host, Anita, and we look forward to being with you for our next episode. This program was produced by H Media. We'll see you soon.